and we are going to study particularly today verses 5 to 10. Jude 5 to 10 and we consider today Jesus the judge. Jesus the judge. Well have you ever been asked to describe someone in just three words? Maybe you're stopped in the street for your opinion on a politician that's in the headlines. Maybe you're debating your favourite footballers and what their particular skills are. Maybe you're, dis- you're asked to describe your spouse and you have to pick just three words. The point of it, of course, is that the very first things that come to our minds tell us what we think of that person. Honest or dishonest? Hardworking or lazy? Attractive or not so attractive? I wonder if we were to go out onto the streets of Dromore or Banbridge or Lisburn and ask people to sum up Jesus in just three words, what would they say? Assuming people would be able to answer it all, I would guess that very few people would describe him as judge. Even for those who are Christians who know and love Jesus, we're more likely to think of him primarily as saviour or shepherd or king. And of course, all of those are right and true descriptions of Jesus. They're all ways that Jesus described himself. And it's true that when Jesus first came to the earth, he came as a saviour and a shepherd. He came to die on the cross for sin and to rise again. But the Bible is also clear, as, as I've mentioned already during our service today, that Jesus will come to the earth a second time. And on that occasion, he will come as our judge. We read earlier from Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43, Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So today, friends, we live in what we call the era of grace. We live in a time when we can proclaim Jesus as Savior for all to hear. And we urge people to come and put their trust in him. And maybe even today, either here in our building or online, there is someone who needs to do that. To trust in Jesus as saviour, to confess sin, to repent. And to have in him their hope of eternal life. But when Jesus comes again, he will come as our judge. He will weigh up the hearts of each one of us. Those who have trusted in him during their life on earth, he will take to be with him forever. Those who did not trust in him will be in a place of eternal torment. And all of that brings us today to Jude verses 5 to 10. We thought last week about how Jude begins his letter with words of great comfort and encouragement for his readers. He calls them saints. He says that they have been called by God, that they are loved by God, that they are being kept By the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thought about the great assurance that those descriptions are. For those of us who are truly believers. We are loved by Jesus. We will never be lost by Jesus. But then Jude comes to the main reason that he's writing in verse 4. And he says it's because certain people. And that's a way of saying bad eggs. Certain false teachers. Have subtly begun Influencing the Christian church with false teaching and sinful living. Jude sums up their attitude at the very end of verse 4. He says that these people deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
These people live as if Jesus has no authority over them. Uh, They perhaps have been claiming uh, that if you have confessed your sins and trusted in Jesus, that that you have a license, so to speak, to live however you want. And these people are unsettling the church. They are, spiritually and doctrinally speaking, a threat to the church. Perhaps they are causing some to forget or to become muddled or confused in their own understanding of God's word. Jude hints at that in verse 5. He says, I want to remind you, though you once fully knew it. So they've perhaps become confused by these people. And so the purpose of the next section of the letter that we come to today, friends, uh, is for Jude's readers to be reassured and to have things clarified. Jude reassures them here that these imposters are not getting away with anything. Jesus is a judge and he will deal with these intruders and unbelievers when and how he sees fit. And so today we're reminded of a solemn truth and it is a rather solemn message that we're going to hear today, friends, that Jesus is our judge. He will judge you, he will judge me. And from what we study today, we're to be left in no doubt about that. I want to see, think first of all today, as we look at verses 5 to 7, we see three examples of Jesus the judge. Three examples of Jesus the judge. Uh, it's not that Jesus hasn't yet begun judging. In some measure, Jesus already has been acting in judgment, in a sense, for all eternity. And Jude gives us some examples of that here to warn us that Jesus will judge again in future. And so three different examples of Jesus' judgment. First of all, Jesus has judged pretend believers. Jesus judges pretend believers. Verse 5, Jude says, Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Some of the earliest manuscripts have the word Jesus there. In verse 5, others have the Lord, which is how the NIV and the King James translate it. Uh, Whichever we go with, it's the same meaning because Jude has already called Jesus Lord in verse 4. And so Jesus is Lord. He is God. uh, And so that's who he's talking about here. Uh, The Lord or Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so the first example that Jude gives of Jesus judging is from the history of Israel. The nation of God's chosen people. And you remember what happened to them. Having been saved dramatically, miraculously by God. Out of their slavery in Egypt. And brought through the Red Sea. And given the Ten Commandments. And promised repeatedly by God that they are headed for the promised land. What happened? Numbers 13 and 14 tell us they arrive at the border of the promised land. They send spies in to have a look around, which was commanded by God. But the spies come back and give what some translations call a bad report. The spies come back and tell God's people, there's no way we can conquer this land. People are too big. Cities are impregnable, will be destroyed. And the people fail to believe the promises of God that he will bring them in. And he will give them victory over their enemies. And he has promised to give them this land. They they don't believe that. 
And they even grumble about going back to Egypt. And that generation who grumbled many times over the course of uh, that journey to the, the border of the promised land. They show their true colours. They are not true believers. And what happened? That entire generation of Israelites, men and women, died in the wilderness as God's punishment for their unbelief. All of them except Caleb and Joshua, of course, the the faithful spies, the men who did have faith in God's word. But God, the Lord, judged all those friends who did not believe. And this first example of Jesus' judgment would have perhaps been the most striking for, for Jude's readers. That people who seemed to be part of the, the covenant community of God's people. People who had received God's word. People who had seen and been on the, the right side of miraculous deeds of judgment by God in Egypt. That those same people nonetheless were destroyed. They were judged because of their own belief. So Jesus judged pretend believers. But secondly, Jesus also judged fallen angels. Jesus judged fallen angels. If you look at verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. But left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Until the judgment of the great day. What Jude is talking about here is the rebellion of some angels against God in heaven, which took place, we believe, before uh, the, the fall of mankind into sin. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about that. Uh, most interpreters who believe that the passage we read earlier from Revelation 12 tells us a little bit about it, that Satan leads this campaign of rebellious angels against God, and the archangel Michael leads the campaign against Satan. And we'll think more about Michael later. Revelation 12 verse 8 says that Michael defeated Satan and his angels. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So it's similar language to what Jude uses here. So Satan and his angels, also called demons, they were cast out of heaven because of their rebellion against God. And they now wander the invisible spiritual realm of our world. And when Jude says that they're kept in chains, most likely he's not talking about literal chains. He's saying that they are limited in their powers and in their influence. They can do some harm. They exert some influence upon our world, but they are not all powerful. They have been limited by God. They are not allowed back into heaven. And eventually they too will receive the ultimate judgment of Jesus Christ. Now there is, I should maybe mention, uh, there is another interpretation of Jude verse 6 which ties in with a different interpretation of Genesis chapter 6 which we thought about a few months ago. Um, If you have very, very good memories, you might remember that when we were in Genesis 6, 1 to 8, I mentioned that there are a lot of commentators who believe that Genesis 6 talks about fallen angels coming to the earth and having intercourse with women and offspring with women. And some people think that Jude 6 ties into that whole interpretation. I'm still not convinced about that idea. Not least because Jude doesn't mention anything like that in verse 6. I think you're reading far too much into the text if you come to that conclusion. I think Jude verse 6 is referring to the original rebellion of Satan and angels in heaven. And they're being cast out of heaven as judgment. But that's just to let you know other interpretations are available. (laughs) 
Satan and demons will not simply, however, wander the spirit world forever. Judah's saying here that they have received some measure of judgment already. And he says they will be judged by Jesus Christ on that great day when Jesus returns. So Jesus judged pretend believers. Jesus judged fallen angels. And the third example that Jude gives of Jesus' judgment is his judgment of perverted pagans. Perverted pagans. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, first spoken about in Genesis 19, or their sin, first spoken about in Genesis 19. Sir, they serve as a warning all through the rest of Scripture. A warning that Jude gives here, an example of the fiercest wrath of God literally raining down on unrepentant sinners. It's an incredibly dramatic passage that we read in Genesis 19. Fire. Brimstone, cities not just flattened but burned away to nothing. No hint of civilization ever having been there. And such was the physical impact of God's judgment on those cities that archaeological evidence could still be found thousands of years later in the, in the place where those cities once stood that they had been burned to the ground, even if the cause of the burning was not obvious. To those without the scriptures beside them. Joseph, or sorry, Josephus, the, the famous first century Jewish historian, he said that smoke would still rise hundreds of years later from the ground in that area due to whatever chemical reactions were still going on on the earth's surface. But notice what Jude says about Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. They serve as an example. In other words, what happened to them, the the unstoppable, inescapable judgment of God, what happened to them will happen again to those guilty of the same kinds of sins. Sexual immorality, pursuing unnatural desire. So pretend believers, fallen angels, perverted pagans. Here are three examples from history, friends, of Jesus the judge. And Judah's saying that if he judged the very people that he had saved out of slavery, saved miraculously, you don't think he'll also judge you? If he judged angelic beings, creatures who dwelt in heaven in the presence of God, you don't think he'll judge you too? If he, if he knew all about the perverted sexual and homosexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, And if he eventually decided that enough was enough and he came and burnt those places to the ground in judgment, do you not think that he will eventually do the same to those who live like that today? Jesus has carried out judgment in the past. He will do so again in the future. Maybe you're part of the visible church. That's what the nation of Israel was in those days. It was the visible church that God saved out of Egypt. And maybe you likewise are with God's people, amongst God's people, doing the sorts of things God's people do. But in reality, you're going through the motions. And you don't yet truly believe. 
And if that's you today, judgment will come upon you sooner rather than later. Jude's words also serve as a warning to the completely corrupted, depraved, sexually immoral culture in which we live today. What was the headline news on BBC Northern Ireland last night? Belfast Pride Parade, back for the first time in three years, the biggest ever. As part of Pride Weekend in Belfast, even now as we sit here this morning, there is an event taking place at the Mac Exhibition Centre, Drag Time Stories with Cherry on Top. A drag queen reading stories to children. And in case you're thinking, surely no sane parent would subject their children to, th- to something as twisted and disturbing and ridiculous as that, the event is sold out. It's just the latest example of the irrational, sexuality-obsessed insanity that we are seeing in our nation today. And it may feel to, to us as though it just goes on and on and it just keeps getting worse and worse. And just when you think that we're at the bottom of the barrel, somehow we go deeper. And certainly for the last 30 or 40 years, that's been the case. But friends, it will not go on forever. Because eventually, Jesus will judge it. The smoke that was still rising hundreds of years later from the sites of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities bear witness to that. When God brings judgment, he will bring it powerfully, decisively, devastatingly. Angels in heaven, pretend believers on earth, perverted pagans. All of them have had to face Jesus the judge in the past. All of them will have to face him again. So three examples of Jesus the judge. But secondly, our our second and, and last main point of today, which we'll spend a little bit longer on. The ultimate reason that Jesus will judge. The ultimate reason. We're thinking about various different types of sin today and perhaps focusing in as, as we'll do again in a few moments on these sexual sins that Jude highlights. But we're not to be thinking that one particular sin only is going to receive the judgment of God. There is an underlying attitude that gives, uh, that gives way or gives birth, you might say, to all these other different types of sins, whatever form they take. So look at verse 8. Jude says in verse 8, Yet in like manner these people also... So back to the days of Jude and the the situation facing the people he's writing to. These people also that have slipped in amongst you, he's saying, uh, he says in verse 8, they are relying on their dreams. Or some of your translations will describe them as filthy dreamers. Some commentators suggest these imposters justified their sins by saying, God spoke to me in a dream. God said that this is okay. God said that this is his will for my life. And of course, dreams were one way that God spoke to some of his people in the past. But just because someone claims to have been spoken by God in a dream, of course, does not mean that they actually have been. Plenty of people, even in our own day, have made all kinds of claims about God speaking to them in one way or another that have been shown to be completely false. The point is, friends, these imposters... Were making excuses for their sin. They were making excuses for their sin. And Jude goes on to specify their sins. Verse 8 They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. 
The, the language there of defile the flesh, it's another reference to sexual sin. And this is any kind of sexual behavior outside of biblical marriage. Anything at all, not just uh, one particular type of sexual sin. He says they reject authority. Most likely there again, Jude has in mind the authority of God, of Jesus. And perhaps also the authority of those in positions of leadership in the church placed there by God. And they blaspheme or they slander, uh, they speak disrespectfully of the glorious ones. Some of your translations have celestial beings. That most likely refers to angels. Uh, Perhaps these people were making, they were claiming that they were somehow above angels or even more spiritually enlightened than the angels of heaven. Jude doesn't give us the details, but the point is that these people were acting as though they were better than anyone and answerable to no one. Better than everyone and answerable to no one. And all of this can really be traced back to what Jude said about them in verse 4. Again, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so what is the underlying attitude of these people that presents itself in all these different types of sins? The underlying attitude, friends, is pride. I don't need to obey God. I don't need to submit to his rules. They don't apply to me for reason X, Y, or Z. I've moved beyond these things. I've I've reached a higher, more evolved way of thinking. Whatever language they might use, However it might be dressed up, it boils down to rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate reason, friends, why Jesus will judge. Rejection of God's God's Lordship, his, his rule over our lives, it leads to all other sins. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Eve and Adam alongside her, they had God's authority to, to turn to. Or they had the claimed authority of Satan. And they went their own way. And the result was pain and sin and death. And sadly friends this is what is at the root of all that is so badly wrong. And twisted and painful in our world today. Rejection of God's authority. And no matter how many floods. Or devastating heat waves. No matter how many pandemics or illnesses, or widespread viruses uh, God sends upon this earth in forms of judgment here and now, we are yet to see the nations of the world humble themselves and repent. In Jude's day, it showed up in sexual immorality and blasphemy, general rejection of authority. It's just the same in our day, isn't it? We see all those same things. And it will come in, and it is, and it has come in to parts of the visible church. And what we need to be prepared for, friends, is for these things to come right into our personal lives. For some of you, it already has. But we need to be prepared for a work colleague, or a friend, or a neighbor, or a family member, perhaps even someone who claims to be a Christian, coming and saying things like this to you. I'm in a relationship with someone and we're going to live together. We're not going to get married because sure, what does it matter? We're committed to each other. Or I'm marrying someone and we're of the same sex. 
And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that the Bible says that's wrong. But actually I was talking to Pastor So-and-so. Or I was reading this great book by this fantastic new writer. And they were pointing out that actually there's a lot of things in the Bible that Christians don't believe anymore. You know, Christians don't have a problem eating pork. Christians don't take Saturday as a Sabbath or observe some of the rules around Sabbath that there are in the Old Testament. And anyway, in this book that I read or this pastor that I spoke to, they said that the words describing sexual sin in the Bible don't mean what Christians claim they mean today. It's just your interpretation and how do we really know what the words meant in the first place anyway? And in fact, I think as I've been thinking about it, what God is saying to me in my life right now is that he wants me to be happy. God wouldn't have made me this way if he wanted me to live a different way. God wants me to be true to myself. Maybe some of you have heard these things already. As difficult and even heartbreaking as those moments may be, friends, we must be ready, as we considered last week, to contend for the faith. We must be ready to say, no, I love you, I'm concerned for you. You're twisting the word of God. You're making excuses for what the Bible calls sin. And however much you may be trying to justify it, there is no justifying it. God will judge you if you do not repent. And that is an act of love to tell someone that. We intervene when we see our loved ones heading for danger and for devastation. It's a loving thing to call them back from that. As much as the world will try to tell us that we're bigoted and intolerant and all the rest. And sometimes, friends, having said what we can say, having appealed to God's word, having expressed our love and our concern, sometimes we have to leave it there and leave them in God's hands. And Jude actually gives us a very vivid example of that in verse 9. Maybe you've been wondering when we're getting to verse 9 and what is this verse all about? Well, let's look at it together because actually I think the point of it is very important and it's quite simple and it ties in with what I've just been saying. If you look at verse 9, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this sounds very strange to us, partly because many of us aren't really that interested in angels, but also because the Bible doesn't give us any details anywhere else about Michael and Satan having an argument about the body of Moses. Deuteronomy 34 explains to us how God took Moses up into the mountains of Moab and he died there. And Deuteronomy 34 says that God buried Moses. End of story. But you see, Jude 9 is reminding us that there is an unseen spiritual realm. There is an invisible spiritual war going on in our universe between the forces of Satan and the forces of God, between God's loyal angels, as I explained earlier, and the demons who rebelled against him. And that war sometimes spills over into our physical, visible world. And so for whatever reason, it seems that when Moses died in the Moabite mountains, Satan wanted to lay claim to him. We don't know why. And Michael confronted Satan about it. Michael is one of only two angels who are named in the Bible. The other is the angel Gabriel. Michael appears twice in Daniel chapter 10, once here in Jude, and once in Revelation 12. 
Interestingly, every time Michael is mentioned, he is fighting Satan. Gabriel is always delivering God's messages. Michael is always fighting God's wars. But here's the key point. How did Michael respond to Satan when he demanded Moses' body? Did Michael say, I am an angel, you're a fallen angel, you're a rebel and a liar, and I condemn you to hell? No. As much as we might have assumed that Michael had the right to do that as an archangel of God, the leader of the hosts of heaven, he simply said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael left the judgment of Satan to God. Michael didn't overstep his authority. Michael didn't say more than he had authority to say, even to Satan. He left it to God's judgment. And I think part of the point of that and the reason for that for us is, friends, that we should be careful not to get too caught up in the back and forth arguments that imposters, pretend believers, perverted pagans want to draw us into. We may find ourselves coming up against men and women who speak blasphemously, who show no respect for God or his word, who perhaps think themselves above even the angels of heaven. But we don't need to worry about having all the answers to such people. We don't have to be clever enough to convince them of anything. And nor do we have to be the ones to write them off. To say, well, you're, you know, to to pronounce final judgment upon them. Instead, having said what we can. Having contended for the faith with grace and boldness. We can simply say, well, if you continue in this path. The Lord will deal with you. The Lord will rebuke you. You might not listen to me, but one day you will be forced to listen to Jesus, your judge. Look what he says in verse 10, much more straightforward verse. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. One of the justifications people offer for their sins, particularly sexual sin of any sort, is it's just natural. This is who I am. These are the desires that I have, so why should I avoid them? Well, I don't deny for one minute that those desires have come naturally to them. The Bible doesn't deny that either. They're as natural as the desires for anger or violence or greed or impatience or telling lies. I was born this way, people say. Exactly. That's the problem. That's why Jesus says we must be born again. To do whatever comes naturally to us is not a sign of our enlightenment or our evolutionary progress. Jude says it's actually a sign of animal-like foolishness. Instead, when we're born again, when God calls us, as we considered last week, when his spirit births new life in us, we, we are no longer enslaved to those natural desires. But instead we become servants of Jesus Christ, eager to live according to his commands, to submit to his authority, believing that the way of obedience is the way of blessing. And any other way is the way of judgment. Which of those paths are you on today? Are you rejecting the authority of God? Are you keeping back in some measure, some area of your life, your desires, your priorities, your beliefs, 
justifying yourself, making excuses, indulging in sin of one kind or another, even if it's not the kinds of sins specifically that Jude highlights here. Your sins will destroy you. The Lord will rebuke you. Jesus will judge you. Whether you claim to be a Christian or whether you consider yourself so far beyond the Bible and church that you're accountable to nobody, the solemn reality is that your sins will damn you to hell. Eternal, conscious torment. And those are not my words, those are the words of Jesus Christ. So often thought of as just, meek and mild and tolerant. Here's what he said. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus, meek and mild, that's how he warns you today. And I hope and pray that won't be the destiny of anyone who hears this message either in person or online. But that rather the heart cry of each one of us would be, what must I do to be saved? The Bible gives us the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the evidence for that will be that you gladly submit to his authority. That you allow his word to govern every area of your life. Believing that that word brings life and brings blessing. Instead of curse and death. I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus, who saved the people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe.